In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Well, last week we looked at the blessing of adoption, that we have been adopted into God's family. We've been uh, taken out of our sinful position and put into His family because of the love of God and according to the plan of God. Well, very closely connected to that is this idea that he starts with in verse 7, which is redemption. In fact, there's other places in the Bible where you find those two things mentioned in the same verse or verses. Because you really don't get one without the other. You can't become a child of God without being redeemed. And you can't be redeemed without being adopted into God's family. And that's what we're going to consider here this morning is we're considering this idea of redemption or being redeemed. Because that's what the verse spells out. It says, in Him we have redemption. What does it mean to experience or have redemption? The word itself means to, to buy back or to buy out of it. It carried the idea of going to the marketplace and making a purchase out of the marketplace. In fact, it was often used in dealing with slave trade. Say one of your family members got in a place of financial hardship and ended up in bondage, in slavery. You could go and buy them out of slavery back into their freedom. At that time, and that would be called redeeming them, buying them out of the marketplace. I think back in the Old Testament with uh, the story between Boaz and Ruth. In that story, Ruth is a near family member to Boaz, and her husband had died. And so there was this principle in Israel called the kinsman redeemer, where somebody next in line in the family should not leave that widow destitute, but should take her to be his wife and raise children to her husband's name so that his name didn't disappear within Israel. Boaz loved Ruth and he wanted to redeem her. And that's the same idea. Now, as we look at being redeemed in the Bible, it's talking about, it uses it to deal with like God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, bringing them out of bondage, of slavery, and into freedom in their relationship with Him. And that's what really what the picture is for us, is it's dealing with God purchasing us, buying us out of our slavery to sin, out of our bondage to sin, and bringing us to the freedom that we experience in Christ. Now, the word can be used in three different tenses. It can can be used as looking back at the past, in fact it is, and in the present, and also in the future. In fact, as we look at it used in the past, it always looks back at it as something already accomplished in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, it says, But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Notice it's past tense. Christ has already done the work. He's already redeemed us. Same thing in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption 
as sons. So there's those two things connected closely together again. Redemption and adoption. He says that at a certain time in the fullness of time, which is in the past for us now, God sent forth His Son and He redeemed us. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, "...who gave Himself," talking about Christ, "...for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, "...therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance." since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And so notice what it's saying there, that a death has occurred for a specific purpose. And the death is Christ's death, and it occurred so that we would be redeemed. And so all those passages deal with redemption as something that was accomplished in the past. But then we get to experience it in the present. In this passage that we're looking at, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption. So, whereas before it talked about it being accomplished in the past, it's experienced in the present because it's something that we have right now. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14 says, In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But you know what? The Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible also talks about this redemption as being something that we are looking forward to. Something that is still going to happen in the future. Now many things in our Christian faith are that way. We often refer to it as the already but not yet. right? We already have some of the fulfillments of the things that Christ has promised us and accomplished through the Gospel, through the cross and the resurrection. At the same time, We're also looking forward to many of those same things coming to completion. That is the same with redemption. It says that we already experienced this redemption. We have this redemption that Christ accomplished for us in the past. We experience it in the present, but we also look forward to it in the future. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The day that we live in right now, we are sealed today looking forward to a day, a certain day, and he calls that the day of redemption. It's when our salvation becomes complete and we are finally with Him forever and we experience the fullness of the salvation. Right now we experience salvation, but not the fullness that we're going to when we're in His presence. Romans chapter 8. We're coming in right in the middle of a thought, so we better explain that. What he's been saying is that the creation is under the curse of sin... And because all the creation is under the curse of sin, it's groaning. And so if you think about groaning, think about tidal waves and hurricanes and tornadoes and fires. That's creation groaning underneath the curse of sin. At this point, he says, and not only all of creation, but we, we're in that same boat. We're experiencing that same groaning. It says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This idea of being redeemed is something that was accomplished for us in the past by Christ through His death and His resurrection. It's something that we experience in the future. At the moment I put my faith in Christ, I am redeemed. But my experience of it is not complete yet. I'm going to experience an even greater redemption of my body 
and even more full redemption in the last days. And so that's what we're considering here this morning is this idea of being redeemed, being set free. But which, when you think about it, what does that mean? It accomplishes a couple things in our life that moves us to a new position. When you think about Israel, they went from being in bondage to Pharaoh to being the chosen of God, special in his eyes. It's the same with us. We get moved to a new position in Christ. Also, that would come with a much better prospect in life. Israel had nothing to look forward to, but hundreds of more years were the slavery until God acted and redeemed them. And now they have this bright future. And He's doing the same thing with us in the book of Ephesians. He's saying, look, you were in bondage to sin, but now you've been adopted as God's child. You've been redeemed. And now the next thing He's going to talk about that we'll look at next week is an inheritance. In other words, you have a bright prospect, this great future. And so as we look at this idea of being redeemed, let's look through this passage and we're going to notice four different elements that we're dealing with with being redeemed. The first element is the sphere of redemption. Because we notice that in the passage, as we've already noticed through the passage before this and after, and actually through the whole book of Ephesians, there's a little phrase that keeps popping up over and over and over. And it's the phrase, in Him, or in Christ, or in the Beloved. All those referring, obviously, to Christ. And just within chapter 1, there's 12 different references of referring to us as now being in Christ. And in these four verses, there's three times that it's stated. It says in verse 7, in Him, we have this redemption. Skip down to the end of verse 9. And it talks about, uh, his will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. So it keeps referring to the sphere in which we experience this redemption which is in Christ. The only way to experience the redemption that we get to experience is in Him. Jesus Christ came down to this world at the, at the fullness of time as we already read and He laid down His life for us so that in Him we get to be set free. If we're going to experience redemption, if we're going to experience the forgiveness of sins it talks about and all these things and the adoption, all of that takes place, the Bible is very clear, in Christ. It's not in a philosophy. It's not in another religion. It's not in another religious leader. It's not in a church or a denomination. It is in Christ. It's all about Him. It's not something that we could do or achieve or accomplish on our own behalf. It is something that He had to do for us. Which brings us to the next point. The price of this redemption. The price of this redemption is, as the passage clearly states, the blood of of Christ. Notice it says in verse 7, in whom we have redemption through His blood. This is not something new. In fact, this is something that we celebrate in our church repeatedly over and over and over. And, and I'm looking forward to soon getting back to celebrating this where we're passing the elements out to one another. And we'll eat the bread which symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for us. And we'll drink the cup which symbolizes His blood that was shed for us. And you know what? This concept has been there since the beginning of our world. You remember what happened back in the garden with Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve were told, don't eat from that fruit from that one specific tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Well, the day they ate of it, they did die in a spiritual sense. And we'll, we'll deal more with that as we get a little farther into the book of Ephesians. 
But the day they ate of it, they did not die physically. You could say they began to die because death was now going to be their experience. But that day, they did not die physically. But something died. Remember when God, after He confronted Adam and Eve about their sin, and He comes to them, they had tried to hide their guilt and their shame and their nakedness by taking fig leaves and covering themselves, and God says, totally won't work. And so God clothed them. And what did He clothe them with? The skins from an animal that had to die to sacrifice His skin as a covering for their guilt and for their shame. So right from the beginning, you begin to see death. Just as God had told them, sin equals death, rebellion equals death. Death is now the experience. Well, you don't get very far from that. Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice to God. A blood sacrifice from an animal, from the flock. Abel's was that. Cain's was from the fruit of the ground, the accomplishments of his own hands. And God did not favor Cain's offering. He favored Abel's offering. And it just you just go into that. Moses gets off the boat and he offers sacrifices from God after the deliverance and through the flood. And you just see sacrifice after sacrifice. Abraham goes as the chosen person of God who is the father of the chosen people of God. He goes up and God tells him, you're going to offer up your own son. And he takes Isaac up on top of the hill to offer up as a sacrifice to God. And God stops him in the last minute and provides a ram. And so Christ is pictured both through Isaac and through that ram. But the point is we're seeing sacrifice over and over and over. For what? For redemption. For forgiveness. And then under Moses, it becomes National, the family has grown into a nation. And in the book of Leviticus, in chapter 17 and verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It is through these sacrifices, the life of these animals, that they're Throats would be cut, their blood would be spilled, and it would be sprinkled on the altar. And God says that blood is what would pay for sin. And of course, Hebrews looks back and points out that it's not the blood of the bulls and the calves. It's what those looked forward to. Those were a shadow. Those were a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ who would pay for our redemption. You know, a lot of times... People get the idea that it's religion, that our redemption, our forgiveness comes by doing good, that you can somehow achieve it or earn it. You can't. The only redemption available is in Christ and through His blood as He paid for our sins on that cross. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers..." not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter takes the two most precious things in our world, silver and gold, and he says not with corruptible things like that, but with the precious blood of Christ we're redeemed. Even when you get to the very end of the book, and you get to the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, what's happening is, There's a scroll that the Apostle John sees and it has seven seals on this scroll. And they need to know what's in the scroll. I think the scroll represents the day of the Lord when Christ returns and and sets up His kingdom. 
But anyway, all these seals, and they're saying, who can open the scroll? Nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And then one person appears that's worthy to open the scroll, and it's the Lamb. It's the Lamb of God, obviously Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He was slain, and by His blood we were ransomed. That word redeemed, also very closely connected to ransomed, because it's being bought with a price. Our redemption comes through Christ at the price of His laying down His life for us, the shedding of His blood. Well, also we see the result of redemption. The result of redemption is spelled out as forgiveness. It says in Him we've, we received redemption, the forgiveness of our transgressions. That's an awesome thing. We, we talked about how Sacrifice started out, it was there from the very beginning. It was experienced as a family, grew into experience as a nation, and all the way leads all the way up to Christ. Christ is the last sacrifice because He's the ultimate sacrifice that all the others pointed to. But did you know that during Israel's greatest feast of the year, their greatest holiday, the Day of Atonement, there was two goats. Two goats would be brought before God and the priest would lay his hands on the head of one goat and that goat would be killed, and his blood shed for the sins of the people. And he would lay his hands on the head of the other goat, and the idea is that the, the sins of the people are being transferred onto the goat that was being sacrificed in its behalf, and also on this other goat. And that's called the scapegoat. The priest would lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat, transferring the sins onto this goat, and then somebody would take that goat, if you read Leviticus 16, would take that goat out into the wilderness, deep into the wilderness where there's no hope of this goat ever returning, and they would let that goat go way out in the wilderness, way out far from the camp of Israel. And so it was picturing the penalty being paid for the sins of the people and the sins being removed from the camp of Israel and taken far away. And the last thing that had to happen is the priest that offered the sacrifice had to take the clothes off that he'd offered the sacrifice in and wash himself, and then he could return to the community of Israel. And the person that took the scapegoat would have to take the scapegoat way out there and then come back, and he would also have to take off the clothes that he had taken them, uh, the animal out there with and clean himself, and then being cleansed from that, then he could re-enter the community of Israel. You see, there's a definite separation that's made there that the sins of the people have been killed in this animal, have been hauled off into the wilderness, and even the clothing that was worn in the process is gone. There's a separation between the sin. The sin is gone forever. And you know what? That's exactly what he's saying right here. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of these transgressions. The Bible tells us they have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And, you know, those things never touch. They're gone. I love to think about that. The sins of our past, the things that we occasionally re-enter our mind and we beat ourselves up over again, they're not re-entering God's mind. They're, they're gone. 
They're done. They've been removed from the camp. Washed, separated, gone. That's the kind of forgiveness that we get to experience. This redemption, this purchase that Christ has made through His own blood of us results in a complete forgiveness of our transgressions. And then lastly, let's consider the source of redemption. The source of redemption He makes very plain and and we're revisiting this over and over because it is a prominent theme in in Ephesians. It's grace. It says at the end of verse 7, according to the riches of His grace. And that whole phrase He repeats numerous times through the book of Ephesians. I think it's five times. The riches of God's grace. And I love how He starts verse 8. Very consistent with how He ends verse 7. Because it talks about the riches of God's grace. And then verse 8 it says, which He lavished on us. Lavished. That's a good word to go with riches, is it not? It's very fitting. That God is just pouring out on us abundantly of His grace. That we have grace beyond measure in our lives that we get to experience. In fact, this, this word that he uses in the passage right there is um, that he lavished on us is the same word that is used when Jesus feeds the multitudes and then the, after the multitudes are fed, everybody's eaten, everybody's satisfied, and he sends the disciples out. Remember how many disciples are there? Twelve. He sends them out and they all come back with twelve baskets full of leftovers. Everybody completely fed and 12 baskets of leftovers. That's abundance. That's lavish. And that's the word that he's using here. He says, God's grace He lavished upon us. In other words, God is going to pour His grace into your life. You're going to have leftovers of God's grace. Back in Romans chapter 5, it acknowledges the same thing. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. That's an interesting statement. Because often that's what we go to to look to be justified. Right? Oh, I'm a decent person. I keep the rules. I keep, you know, you don't want to go to the law if you're trying to find justification. It just, it's not there. Why? Because the purpose of the law is to point out failure. And so that's where he starts. In Romans chapter 5, he says, Now the law came to increase our guilt. How does the law increase our guilt? Because if there wasn't any law saying that's wrong, then there wouldn't be anything highlighting it or magnifying our sin. But that's exactly what the law does. The law comes along and points out, not when we do good, points out when we do bad. And so the law always condemns us. So the law is not a good place to go if you want to feel good about yourself or find justification. Don't go there. The only place you can go to experience redemption is in Christ. Now, notice what he says. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Remember, we're talking about grace being the source of this redemption. That grace is what God lavishes upon us. That He he gives it to us beyond measure. That's what He's saying in Romans. He says, the law came along and like magnified, highlighted our sin. Made our sin just stand out. But wherever the law did that, grace abounded all the more. In fact, it's kind of the idea that grace superabounded. Wherever the law increased, grace blew it away. Grace overcame it, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, he says the same thing in Romans 5 as he does in Ephesians 1, that God in His grace, He lavishes His grace upon us. Wherever sin abounded, grace superabounded. 
And this grace, it gets interesting because he kind of, I wouldn't, I might say that he changes gears a little bit here because he's still talking about grace, but he goes, he starts to go into another realm. He has been talking about the forgiveness of sin and the redemption, but he starts to talk about then our understanding of so it's not really switching gears, but kind of our understanding of that redemption and our understanding of the grace of God in our life. Because notice, he moves on from there. He says uh, in verse 8, "...which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight." And there's not a huge amount of distinction between those two words. Wisdom is the ability to see things as they really are. Uh, insight, it means understanding. It means the ability to... Um, make good choices uh, based on the reality that we see. And so they're very closely connected. But it says uh, that He lavished it upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things under the earth. So he starts to go into this knowledge, this new knowledge. In fact, he calls it a mystery. The word mystery shows up repeatedly in the book of Ephesians. Uh, what the word mystery means in the Bible is something that previously was not made known, but now it is revealed. Now it's, now it's made known. And so uh, he begins to go into this mystery. And we'll, we'll learn more about the mystery as we move on. It's basically uh, about Christ and the Gospel, and bringing uh, Jews and Gentiles all together in this new thing called the church. And that's really the fulfillment of the mystery of Christ. And we'll, but we'll get more into that as we go farther into the book. But you see the point that he's making is this grace that he's lavished upon us gives us the forgiveness of sin, but it also gives us wisdom and understanding in our understanding of what Christ has accomplished for us so that that will impact our lives. In fact, later on into chapter 1, he's going to really be praying and wanting them to really get a good understanding of this. Really have some good wisdom and good insight as to what this is. Because it's when you really understand the grace of God in your life, and you really get a glimpse of the riches of the grace that He's lavished upon us, that will change your life. That will impact you. You know, Titus addresses that. Well, I should say the Apostle Paul addresses it to Titus. In Titus chapter 2, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. So that's just like in Ephesians, where it talks about the redemption and the forgiveness that is there because of the riches of God's grace. Now the Apostle Paul says the grace of God has appeared, and what did it accomplish? Salvation. But, it goes on from there, it says in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." You see, grace is not done when it has saved you and forgiven you and redeemed you from your sins. Grace is just beginning when you've experienced that. But then he tells us that grace goes on to make our life 
into a life that is going to accomplish so many great things through the grace of God. Grace trains us to live this self-controlled and holy and upright life so that we can accomplish the good things that God wants to accomplish in and through us. And so grace is the source of this redemption that we experience. And this redemption is just the beginning of all of God's grace lavished upon us, wants to achieve within us. So this is what he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that in Christ, we're redeemed. That's the sphere. It's only in Him that we have this redemption. But in Him, this redemption is very complete. The price of our redemption has been purchased through His own blood on that cross. The result of our redemption is complete and utter forgiveness of all of our sins. And the source is the grace of God. 